Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, where we read by the Spirit, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in, the, in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we love to gaze into your word. We have no idea how amazing it truly is. We know it's preeminent beyond our own senses and our own capacity to perceive the riches of it. So we thank you, Lord, that we get to build our lives upon it. We thank you that we get to study it as a family, Lord, and we just want to learn everything that you want to say to us. Help us, Lord, to hear your word clearly by your spirit. And did not just be hearers only, but doers, Lord, by your grace and by your power. Thank you for your wonderful word. Help us to be good stewards of it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've been looking at this great uh, chapter, the Hall of Faith chapter, as it's been referred to, uh, we've been very careful to remember the context of these Jewish believers who were in the midst of this great persecution, and they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. And part of that obviously means that they would reject the Messiah, Jesus. So they were thinking that they would, things would get easier if they did that. The writer's been trying very hard, inspired by the Spirit, to communicate to them things will anything but get easier for you. It'll get a disaster. And so he's been telling them to hold fast their confession of faith. He's been telling them to maintain that confession, to hold fast, to stand firm, to maintain the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and and, and if they hold fast to that, that everything will be according to God's plan through their lives. And what I like about chapter 11 is that in this chapter, he gives very real, concrete, flesh and bone examples of this faith about which he's been speaking from chapters one all the way, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10. And one of the reasons why he does that is for them to be, to be able to really understand kind of like a reference point or a standard of comparison of what the kind of faith that he's been speaking about looks like. And he didn't have to go very far. It wasn't like he had to point out 
Okay, there, here are some examples. I can't find any in the Old Testament. <laughs> I have to look in, you know, the church today or, or what was going on in the, at, at that time in their lives. He doesn't have to do that. He just points to their history. And what he's doing by doing that is saying to them, this isn't new. There's nothing new about this. God's always called his people to walk and live by faith. So you want to go back to the Old Testament? You want to go back to the Old Covenant? Let's do that. And let's see how they withstood trial and difficulty and hardship. And, and, and how did they do that? They did it by trusting God. And we talked about the definition of faith. Faith is not some force that the faith teachers talk about, some tangible, conductible force like electricity and, and, and all these crazy things. It's simply just belief. It's trust. It's trusting God. God has always held faith so highly among his people. And I mean, I think of the biggest example, one of the biggest examples is the whole, whole account of them leaving Egypt and, and him progressing them to the promised land. The whole reason why, we've looked through it, he's used that as an example through the book. The whole reason why they didn't make it in the promised land sooner, it's only like a 15-day journey from Egypt to, to the promised land, is because they didn't believe his word. They didn't have faith in what he said. They, would, they didn't mix it with faith. That's the, that's the description that he uses as we've looked at these chapters earlier. They didn't mix what he said with faith. They heard what he said. It's not like they didn't hear the message. It wasn't like they were tone deaf or, or didn't understand the language. He was very clear to them what he was promising. I'm promising you this land. And then he had this great testimony with them and this track record with them going through and being faithful to them and doing the miraculous the things that only he could do so that they wouldn't doubt him because if he could do those things he could do all the things that would be required to bring them into the promised land all the giants about which they spoke and they were fearful and were like grasshoppers in their sight yeah but they're like fleas in God's sight (laughs) you know I mean what are you worried about And so they didn't believe that report. And so here this writer here in chapter 11, he's trying to get them to see that this is nothing new and that faith is something that God uh, expects from us and that there's all, it's always worth it. Even if we don't get anything tangible or see the physical uh, fulfillment of some of these things in our lifetime, in heaven, we're going to say it's worth it. When we stand before him at that Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and, he's, and we're wanting to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. He won't ever say that to us if we don't live the life of trusting him. Because he says that he won't do things through us unless we abide in him. Part of abiding in him is having faith in him and trusting him. And so he went through all these examples in verses 1 through 10 that we saw. And he continues today. We're going to be looking at a handful of them. And begins there in verse 11 with Sarah. He says, By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past, notice the word, the age. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. At the time that Sarah gave birth, to Isaac, she was 90 years old. So when it says she was past the, the age, uh, I would say that's a pretty correct assessment. But we see that by faith, Sarah herself, she received strength to conceive. And also she bore a child through that strength that God gave. You know, and, and so we see that the Lord is kind of, I mean, think about Sarah's life and, and 
what she did and what she said. Again, last week we talked about we don't have to have a, a, a perfect faith. It says, by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. Not a perfect testimony, not a flawless testimony. And, and so often we see, as we saw last week, we see that God uses people that are imperfect, that fall short. And he puts people in this hall of faith. And I don't believe, I mean, I believe that, that he's still potentially adding people in a sense to the hall of faith, not in recorded scripture. But, you know, anytime that we hear God's voice and we obey what he says by faith, you know, that's something that he looks at and he values. But he doesn't only use people that have perfect faith. And we saw that last week with the man that had had the the child that that was demon-possessed. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus still did the miracle. Didn't say, oh, sorry, not perfect faith. Uh, I'll go on to someone else that has better faith than you. He doesn't do that. And all through, as we saw, and I pointed out some examples already, we see that people weren't perfect whatsoever. And, And Sarah wasn't perfect. Remember, she laughed when, when, when uh, um, Abraham was told about you're going to bear a son, she laughed. And God was like, what? <laughs> I heard that in the tent there. What did she say? You know, and tries to cover it up a little bit, you know, but she laughed at that. And I mean, how can you blame her? I mean, you're pretty old at that time. Uh, <laughs> and and you're, how is that going to work? How is that going to be possible? But and, and so because of that, he, he, you know, Isaac's, na- Isaac's name means laughter. You're going to laugh all right. You're going to laugh when you see me do what only I can do after I've placed you in faith land. We talked about that last night or last week and last night. Uh, He puts us in places of total dependence upon him past our natural resources so that we can learn how to depend upon him. And the, the fallacy is that we're not in that place all the time. We really are dependent upon him for every breath. And we look at our jobs for provision and we look at all these things that we can see with our eyes that, that's still an expression of God's provision, and we're just as dependent upon him as ever. But sometimes he takes us past what we can see on purpose, and he kicks down those bricks of that little house that we're building kind of in our minds about, you know, this world and, 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 and living for this world. And he says, I'm not going to let you set your home here. I'm not going to let you build a house here that you're comfortable in, because this isn't your home. You're a pilgrim. You know, so here's Sarah. She she wasn't perfect. She bore this child, but and it says by faith she did that. She knew it couldn't have been by any natural means. She trusted God, but she wasn't perfect. She she had faults. And notice that he says at the end of verse eleven, she judged him faithful, who had promised. And I want to focus on the word promise because God really had spoken. Again, faith is not presumption. When you're engaged in presumption, you are having a plan and you go out and do it, asking God to bless it and hoping that it might be of his will. (laughs) You know, that isn't something that we're aiming at. We hear God's voice. He says something to us in his word or through a prophecy or, or just directly to our hearts. And we obey what he says to do by his grace and by his power. That's what faith is. And, and here, Sarah, she had heard him promise And she judged, notice she judged, she determined, it was a willful thing, she determined that he is faithful or was faithful who had promised. Because why? God had built a a track record with her. He'd already been engaged in her life. He'd already been faithful. And that's really true for us. How many times does God have to prove to us that he's faithful? 
before we honor him with our faith in a way that he wants us to, in the way that he wants us to. And all of us are, can, be, can be challenged by that question. I remember when I first saw my brother-in-law and my sister go on the mission field in 1990. I was a brand new Christian, and they were going through some incredible things. They first went to Austria to be part of the uh, kind of European version of the School of Ministry there and training uh, Eastern European students for ministry. And Calvary Chapel still owns that castle there that they were serving at. And then they left to go to Hungary to continue the school. And then they went to the Czech Republic. And my brother-in-law pastored a church there for five years. This is all before they came back to America and planted Calvary Chapel Burbank. But I saw them go through these incredible, difficult things and trials and depending upon God to provide and not knowing where they're going to get their next meal and all these things. And I thought, you know, if I were, if I were my brother-in-law, I'd be toast. I would not, could not function. I would be coming back so fast. And I, and I asked him, how, how is it that you can trust God now? when you're going through all these difficult things. And he says, oh, when I first became a Christian, I, I, there's no way I could, have, I could trust the, God the way I can trust him now. It's because he's taken me along with little baby steps and he's, he's stretched my faith a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and now he's stretching it a little bit more. And I thought, wow, I don't know if God will ever stretch me that. I hope he kind of doesn't stretch me that far. I don't want to have to go through that, you know. And, and now I look back, you know, 23 years later and see the things that I've gone through in my Christian walk, and I'm sure you're the same way, you look back and go, man, I can't believe that I've been able to stand strong and have faith in God. But he stretches you. But it doesn't always happen all right away. It's just little tiny baby steps of being stretched and being stretched a little further and putting you in impossible situations, seeing God come through. So my question for you this morning is, what has God promised you? Has he spoken something to your heart? If it's really him who's spoken that to you, he's going to do it. And you have to honor him and look back at how faithful he's been to honor everything else he said he's going to do in your life. And you need to walk by faith and step out. We, we have to be a fellowship where people are stepping out in faith all the time in response to what he's spoken to them to do. And, and that's why I, I love when people make mistakes in ministry. I mean, not constantly, obviously. I mean, he's called us to do things well and so forth, but he doesn't call us to be perfect. And when people are serving the Lord, especially among us, and they make a mistake, uh, they feel bad and whatever. And it's like, you know, that's encouragement to other people that when they serve the Lord and, and step out in faith and obey God, that they don't have to be perfect in their expression of, of faith and ministry, that they're going to make mistakes. And then I come up here and forget communion one day on one Sunday. Some of you were there for that. I mean, we all do. We all make mistakes. If we have an environment where we can't make mistakes, that squelches ministry. It, it creates an environment where we are so afraid to make a mistake that we don't step out and obey God and what he's telling us to do. And we, that means that all of us have to be patient with one another's uh, mistakes in ministry and, and encourage one another. Hey, it's okay. You're, you're, you'll be fine. You did great. When we went out a few weeks ago handing out flyers for VBS and the kids were there and they were handing out flyers, they were struggling so hard. Those that were inviting people and talking for the first time, stuttering and like having a hard time. And the people there were so blessed that they were trying so hard. But those kids saw that, you know, after another 10 minutes, 15 minutes of doing it, and it, all of a sudden it was a little bit easier. But if, they were, if I was saying to them right away, oh, pfft. You don't, get this, you don't have the script perfectly down. Forget it. You can't do this. 
then they never would have grown in that. And so we need to see that as a, how we should function in the church, a place of grace, a place of, of incredible mercy and patience because all of us are growing. I've said this before, but when we started the church and the first book was the book of Acts, that's the first book I ever taught through, ever. <laughs> I didn't tell you guys that right away, <laughs> you know, but uh, and maybe you probably knew. You don't have to tell us. We, we knew that. We saw that. But uh, God was gracious, you know, and we're growing, we're developing. But it was a big step of faith for me to, to, to teach through a whole book of the Bible. Never done that before. Now look at verse 12. He says, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Sounds kind of like a Western, huh? Him as good as dead. You're as good as dead, you know. And he's talking about, I mean, Abraham physically related to having a son. It's pretty, you know, he's 10 years older than Sarah. She's 90. He's 100. How many 100-year-old men are, you know, are you consider just, you know, able to, to, to pull this kind of thing off? I mean, it's like, I can see how Sarah was like, this guy is good as dead, you know. And, but the point is, is that... Uh, you know, the, 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 the promise was God's not limited by age. That's the whole point. God takes us so far past what's logical, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Whatever you're stepping out in faith to do, yes, it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense. What, marching around Jericho seven times? Oh, that's great military planning right there. Where do we sign that guy up to write the next strategic book on military planning? But God did that. He took Gideon and kept shrinking down his army. I mean, all the way through the scriptures, he puts us in impossible situations so that he can be seen. And we're okay with that until he wants to call us to do something that seems impossible and like there's, that makes no sense whatsoever. And he says, yeah, I haven't got the wrong guy or gal. Moses, I've called you. I don't need Aaron to be your spokesman. I'm gracious with that. I'll work with that. But you, I, I didn't mess up in my, he knows who he's getting. You know, and that we, we struggle with that. There's all kinds of things that God wants to do among this fellowship and through this fellowship and if we are afraid and insecure about who we are and how God can use us then none of those things are going to happen and he wants us to step out in faith I told you this many times I never ever dreamed about being a senior pastor or planning a church ever never but God said that's what I want you to do and so I'm trying to be obedient to that and 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 he's definitely getting glory through it now verse 13 he says these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This is interesting. He says assured, embraced, confessed, all these things. And he says that they died in faith. They died maintaining obedience to what God had called them to do. And he says not having received the promises but having seen them afar. Now, through this list, we're going to see some of them receive some promises in this life related to what they were engaged in. But he's talking about, and it's like this common theme all the way through, and you have to look closely to see it. He's saying there's this ultimate promise behind all the other promises, the backdrop of all the other promises, talking about heaven. And he's going to mention it over and over and over and over and over again. They were thinking that this world was not their final destination. This goes far beyond trusting in all these other things that they were trusting in for God to do that he promised them to do in this life. Some of those were fulfilled in some of these people's lives. Some of them weren't. 
but ultimately they all had the same thing promised to them that they were going to be with God someday in heaven and have a place to, to call a home that with, with, without um, uh, whose builder and maker is God. Actually, look back in, in, in verses 9 and 10. He says, By faith he dwelt, that's, that's Abraham, in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, that heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And what we talked about last week is that they dwelt in tents, and that's a good picture for us. And we talk about our own bodies. You know, we're told that we have these tents here in 2 Corinthians. And, and we're passing through. This, this, this uh, world is not our home. And so this common theme is, he began it in verse 10, that, that, that it's that this world the, the world that is not that we're going to is not is is the ultimate place where we're going and here is not our ultimate uh, place and that's why he says in verse 10 a city which has foundations tents don't have foundations that's why he says that when, when do you buy a tent and it comes with its own foundation you know a little cement slab there that comes with it and you fold it out and put it together you know and then you put your tent on top of the foundation no that you don't do that that's the whole purpose of why you need a tent, is that you don't have a foundation and a house. And he says, whose builder and maker is God. So he says, all these people, they died in faith in verse 13, not having received the promises, but seeing them from afar. And that's, that's the life of faith, isn't it? You see these things from afar. You see them spiritually. You see them in kind of in the spiritual realm. You don't see them necessarily in the physical realm, but he says they were assured of them. God wants to assure us of his word and his promises. We're told that his promises are yea and amen to us. He's not yes and no, we're told. He's yes and yes. We can count on his word and, and, and his promises. And we're told in the middle of verse 13 that they embraced them. That's literally in the Greek, they greeted them. Because when they would greet, they would embrace. Much of kind of how we do things here. We embrace. Don't be afraid, you know. It's okay, little side hug. That's okay, you know. That's, that's sufficient. But he, they, would, they would meet and they would greet with people with a holy kiss. And they would embrace. That's, that's what he's saying there. They fully embraced these promises that they could see from afar. They couldn't see them close up. And he, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The Greek word for confess means to say the same thing as. In other words, it's talking about verbal agreement. When we confess our sins, like we're told in 1 John 1, 9, we are agreeing with God verbally that what he says is sin is sin and that we've committed that sin. That's what it means. So he says they confessed, they said with their mouths that they were, and they knew that, that they were the strangers and pilgrims on this earth. They agreed. And he, and, and he continues that in verse 14 because he says, for those who, notice the next word, say such things. They were confessing. For those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would, not, they would have had opportunity to return. Again, these Hebrew believers are being tempted because of persecution. And they were being tempted to call to mind the place from which they came, that is Judaism. And so this writer is saying, don't, don't be like that. Be like these, these heroes of the faith that were looking towards heaven like you should be. 
And if they started thinking about the places from which they came, they wouldn't be able to go forward in what God had called them to do by faith because they'd been distracted. And that's a good word for us because sometimes when we're getting buffeted and we're getting or discouraged or we're going through things, we can start having this skewed vision of the world. We can start thinking that the world is really not all that bad. Just remember the Israelites in the desert, they were saying, oh, we used to be treated so well and we had all, we had all, we had onions and leeks and we had, you know, all, all these great things. They had revisionist history going on in their minds. They were revising the historical account of what reality was. They were slaves. They were being brutalized. That's what really happened. But being in that wilderness, because it wasn't what they preferred, after a while they started thinking that it wasn't so bad in Egypt. And Egypt is always a picture of the world in Scripture. So here we're supposed to focus on our homeland and where we're going and, and, and heaven and all those things. And if we focus on our current circumstances so much and not see the bigger picture of what God's doing through our lives and in our lives, we're at, we're at risk. I want to give a warning here. We're at, we're at risk of going back to the world, thinking that it's a better, a better portion uh, than what our portion is in Christ. Better is one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. It's true then. It's true today. So he says they declared that plainly that these what they were going was infinitely better and and if they thought differently then they would have had an opportunity to return verse 16 but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them first of all the contrasting word there but in verse 16 and then the word better We've seen that word all the way through Hebrews. It appears 13 times in Hebrews. Better, better covenant, better than the angels, better than the prophets, better, you know, than better high priest. We've seen it all up to this point now. So all of this should really click and make sense. This chapter 11 so often is studied with, apart from the first 10 chapters because it's hard work going through the first 10 chapters. But it unlocks really what this whole chapter is about. It's always been a... a a life of faith. And the new covenant is a better covenant. And the country that we're going to is a heavenly country. It's better. And then he says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's interesting to think about because we, we sometimes think, well, are we ashamed of God in our lives? Are we living a life in our lives in such a way to where we demonstrate that we're ashamed of him? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father in heaven. But if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. So what does God think about me? Is he, you know, is he ashamed to be, to be called my God? Look at, again, the shortcomings that we see. Noah, he had shortcomings. You know, um, Abraham, I, uh, Sarah, Isaac, it, they, they weren't these perfect people. But they were people that trusted what, what he said at times, not even perfectly. There were pockets of time, and most of them major pockets of time, where they were honoring God with their faith and obeying what he said, and, and he, called, he says, I'm not ashamed to be their God. That's what God says about us. He's not ashamed to be called our God. He's not ashamed to be identified with us, which, which is amazing to think about. He's not ashamed of, to be identified with us. If I were God, I'd be pretty ashamed to be identified with us. I mean, think about those disciples 
Here they're fighting about who's the greatest all, the whole entire time, just about. And those are the guys that he picked. Did he make a mistake? No. We're told in Scripture he prayed all night before he chose them. So that we wouldn't miss that he chooses boneheads like us so he can get glory when he does a great work through our lives. And when we miss that and forget that, we start getting prideful and seeing ourselves higher than we ought. And, we, and we, he tells us to take heed lest we fall. Because he says, you are not sufficient in yourselves. You're sufficient in me. So he says, now they desire a, a better, something better, a heavenly country. And he says, notice the end of verse 16, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, I immediately think of when Jesus said, if I go away, I prepare a place for you. And I'll receive you unto myself. If I go away, I'll, I'll receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Beautiful. He's preparing bodies for us, new bodies, glorified bodies. He's also preparing new Jerusalem for us. And we're, I can't wait to get to Revelation and look at the new Jerusalem being lowered down, descending from heaven there. Beautiful. So all those Old Testament saints that trusted God, that obeyed God, they had a higher promise that was given to them related to eternity and heaven and all of that that transcends all of the other things that they were promised, some of which they received in this life, some, many of them didn't. In the last 10 verses of this chapter, I call it the, 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 the still others portion of the chapter, highlights so many people that didn't receive anything. I mean, nothing for uh, their, their faith whatsoever in this life. Now, in verse 17, he says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Abraham was tested. He had received that promise. He knew what God had said. And God told him to offer up his son. Notice, offered is in the past tense. It occurred. It had happened in time there. And, and he said, he who had received the promises. Promises of what? That, that God was going to multiply his descendants. And, and so if it was going to happen through Isaac, then he knew that, well, how can that happen? If I kill my son, if I sacrifice my son, then that promise can't happen. Those two things were mutually exclusive because his, his son was at stake. And notice he says his only begotten son. Did you catch that at the end of verse 17? Wait a minute, that wasn't Abraham's only son. There was Ishmael. The, the whole the expression of Abraham trying to help God out. God doesn't need any help. And, and what's interesting about that is that God doesn't recognize Ishmael. Because he's associated with this promise and no other son is associated with this promise. The Muslims today, they, they go trace all the way back to Ishmael. And they say that Ishmael was the promised son. So you've got to read this book, you know. It says something entirely different. And look at the conflict that's here in the world between the Jews and the Palestinians and the Arabs and so forth. It all goes back to a man trying to help God out. That's just boil it down to its simplest form. Abraham trying to help God out produced Ishmael. And because of that, it, the whole lineage goes and that whole conflict started and it, and it continues to this day. What's interesting about all of this is that there was this, this apparent clash or head-on collision in, 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 uh, in the sight of Abraham with God's promises 
and his commands. They were, they were coming together like a train wreck was going to happen. You have God's promise that he was going to multiply his descendants through Isaac, but yet God's command was to offer up his son. You have God's command and God's promises colliding there. And so what do you do? Well, some people will say, you just wait for God to do what he's going to do. Well, what about the command? You have to do the command. He says to do it. So you don't want to, you know, you don't want to disobey God to, to ensure that his promise is fulfilled. And I want to really go slowly here so we can really get this. God doesn't need our disobedience to fulfill a promise of his. That's what Abraham did. God never told him to, to uh, be intimate with Hagar. He was supposed to be faithful to his wife. He disobeyed God's command to try to help God fulfill a promise. But that it was, in the Jewish believers, of course, the context matters here. They, don't, they're not gonna, they shouldn't violate God's command to follow Jesus, his Messiah, so that God can fulfill the promise of giving them peace in this life because they were experiencing persecution. No, you wait on God's promises to be fulfilled. You obey him and you wait for him to fulfill however long it takes, and no matter how difficult things get. You know, we know that Jesus said, I've come that they would have life and have it more abundantly. And this world knows Many parts of this world, many people in this world, know that Jesus said that. And they redefine, and unfortunately Christians can fall into this, redefine what the abundant life is. And they think that God's ultimately concerned with our happiness and comfort at any given time. And so because of that, we're tempted at times to disobey God because we think, well, he wants me to have the abundant life. He wants me to be fulfilled in all these things. And so we try to fulfill that promise of the abundant life by disobeying what God says. I'll give you an example. And I've, man, this has been so painful for me over the years. In marriages, you have a man not being the leader of his home, not being a godly leader, and the wife not being a godly wife, and they have marriage conflicts and marriage issues severe. You know, I'm talking about where the, where the, 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 there's, they're in danger of, of divorce and all of that. And so often it's t- one, one spouse is really neglecting the other and it goes on for a long period of time. The other spouse that's being hurt starts listening to other people and Satan is so good at bringing these other counselors that say, God just wants you to be happy. You need to take care of your own needs. If you don't take care of your own needs, who will? You need to put yourself first. If you don't, who will? All these things. And what, what happens is they end up trying to fulfill God's promise of of the abundant life by disobeying what God says related to being obedient to their marriage vows and fulfilling those marriage vows. And they try to take this shortcut. And maybe there's some people here that are trying to take a shortcut related to what God's promised because you don't see it happening. So you're going to circumvent that by disobedience. And God will never bless that. It'll just be further disaster. He wants us to learn from his word and from other people's mistakes. He doesn't need our disobedience to fulfill his promises. When his promises and his commands are on a, 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 a course of, of collide, colliding, let him work it out. You obey what he says and let him worry about his promises because he, he, he never gave us the responsibility of fulfilling his promises. That's why they're his promises. So we should heed that and, and listen to that. Then he says in, in verse 18, of whom it was said, 
In Isaac, your, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to rise him, raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So verse 18 is the word of God. It says, is God's word to Abraham, of whom it was said, in Isaac, not Ishmael or anyone else, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So he sees that, and then we see his expression of faith in verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So God's promise and God's command were on a collision course, and and he said, I'm going to obey what he says. I'm not going to try to get around that and try to help him out. I've already done that. (laughs) I don't need to help him out anymore. I never did. And so he obeys what he says, and he offers him up. And God considered that as if he did offer him up. And he considered that faith in obeying him. And and Abraham knew because his word said that he's going to use this son to, to multiply my descendants, that God could even raise him from the dead. And the reason why he was able to do that is because of God's track record within his life. And that's true for our lives. God has given us such a great track record with him. We see how faithful he has been. And he's not going to stop being faithful now. He doesn't change. And he doesn't show partiality. And so he says, I will continue to do what only I can do, but you have to believe what I say and trust my word. Now lastly, he says at the end of verse 19, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. What does that mean? Abraham received him in a figurative sense. Received him back from the dead. Because it was as if he died. And so he received him back from the dead, so to speak. And that's what he's getting at there. So it's a beautiful thing because Abraham said, I'm going to do what's right. And God's going to take care of the rest. And even, if, and even though he didn't actually die, I'm receiving him as if he did. And as, as if God raised him from the dead. And then verse 20, we're told, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. This is interesting, he brings Isaac into this now as an adult, and we see this in Genesis chapter 27, and you know the account where, first of all, uh, you know, Jacob sells his birthright uh, to Esau for some stew. That wasn't very wise of Esau, and it was, of course, you know, deceitful on, on uh, Jacob's side. But then when, when Isaac is old and he can't see you know, the, 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 the Rebecca gets involved and, you know, the, here you have Isaac preferring Esau as a son, unfortunately, and Rebecca prefers Jacob and she has this whole scheme to, to have uh, Isaac think that uh, he's blessing Esau when in reality he's blessing Jacob. And so verse 20 is interesting because we're not told in Genesis that Isaac did it by faith. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20. So by faith, Isaac blessed uh, who he thought was Esau. But in reality, he was blessing Jacob. And I want to read that, um, that blessing to you that he said to, uh, to Jacob, thinking it was Esau. Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field, okay, uh, which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. 
So this is the blessing that he thinks is going to, to Esau, but it's really going to Jacob. But he did it in faith. You know, and there's controversy about, well, you know, uh, God was frustrating his, uh, you know, his desire to have favoritism on Esau by, you, by allowing Jacob and his mom to use deception in that whole case and, and, and so forth. But the point of all of this, of what we're looking at, is that uh, Isaac did it by faith. He trusted God. He trusted that what he said and, and, and this blessing that he pronounced on his son would uh, bless Esau to the fullest possible extent. But, we, but when Esau finds out about it and begs him, he says, I can't reverse it. I mean, this, these things are going to happen to Jacob. But then he still has a blessing for Esau. Now, you have to put yourself in, in Isaac's uh, position. He loves his son Esau. He wants what's best for Esau. And so he, he, he pronounces this blessing and he says, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. And then we're told, so Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So uh, interesting that God would put that in the hall of faith. And, you know, why wouldn't he talk about Isaac in other ways of faith? I mean, or expressing his faith. I mean, what about that sacrifice when, I mean, he was around 30 years old. At the time when Abraham went to offer him, he could have got off that altar. You know, hey, Dad, you know, what's, what's going on? You know, what are you doing? You know, I mean, he trusted too. That's not mentioned here. And it could have been. What's mentioned is that when he gave this blessing to his sons, that he did it in faith. And so these Jewish believers, another great example for them to see. What you do, do in faith. Trust God. He's worthy of, of that faith. There are all kinds of ways that we can express faith in God. And there's not just one way that we see. All through this chapter, as we're, we're going to see as we look at the other you know, 20 verses or so, many ways to honor God with our faith. And, but if we don't do that, if we don't honor him when he takes us purposely out into these uncharted waters that I call faith land, um, when, we, when he takes us out there, we don't want to waste that experience. Because he will keep disciplining us and keep, because he wants us to bear fruit for him. He wants to be glorified through our lives. And we can try to circumvent one way and then he's just right there meeting us on the, the other way. And we just have to submit whatever, Lord, you have for me. I know it's great. And I'm not going to put my trust in myself, in this world, in this world system. I'm going to trust only in you. And we just, as you know, celebrated five years as a fellowship. And I kind of call this time, you know, act two. We've done act one, and now we're in act two. He's brought people in. He's sent people out. That's very normal in the New Testament church, that people coming and going. And so that creates opportunities for people. And I want to know what your gifts are. I want to know what you have a heart to do. Because we haven't announced it or we haven't said anything to you doesn't mean we're not praying for those specific areas to be filled or, or this new thing that we've never even thought of that would be perfect, that lines up with Acts 2.42 and Ephesians 4 related to what the church should be about. We're just waiting for you to come forward and say, you know, this is on my heart. This is what my gifts are. We're, that's, that's what we're wanting. That's, what, that's how the church is supposed to function. How are we supposed to fulfill the plan that God has for our church if we're not honoring him 
with our faith, but even in our personal lives, apart from our corporate family here, our personal family. We're called to be people of faith. Our kids are watching our lives. Our grandkids are watching our lives. We need to be those that honor him with our faith and lead by example and say, you know, we don't understand by sight. We don't understand what's going on. I can't make sense of it, honey. You know, you tell your kids, I I can't make sense of why we can't afford this or we can't do that. I don't understand all the things, but we know that as for me and our house, (laughs) we're serving the Lord and we're we're putting him first and, and putting him and his righteousness first in our lives. And he'll add all these things that we need. And to make that stand and say, we don't walk by sight in this home. By God's grace, we walk by faith in him. Not faith in our faith, faith in him. Far greater than our own faith is him. And so to lead by example, to to be mothering by faith in God, dependence upon him, to be homeschooling or to be helping our children who's in school, to help them with their homework and help them with their studies. And that needs to be all dependent upon the Lord and sought after and prayed about and, and seeking the Lord in and so forth. All those things, instead of walking in our own understanding, he's called us to walk by faith. Our lives are not supposed to have any explanation apart from from him. They're not supposed to, people aren't supposed to understand how we function in this world. We're supposed to be kind of like a, um, you know, something that people, an enigma, where people look at, oh, I don't understand how this person functions and how they're actually used by God that way. But that's, that's what he specializes in. So he's given us all these great examples of what it looks like. I mean, how many examples are we going to see here? I haven't counted them all, but it's a lot. And they all had different backgrounds. They all had different struggles. They all had different proclivities for different sins. They all had, I mean, so he just levels the playing field and says, look, I know that you're, not, you're from this background or this background. It doesn't matter because my people have always been from different backgrounds and I've never been limited by their backgrounds and who they are. He's worthy of that faith. And so that's where he's bringing us, not, don't, not only as a, as a fellowship, but as in, in individuals to trust him. He's worthy of, the, of our faith. He's worthy of it. Let's honor him with that and step out with what he's called us to do so that he can get the glory that he is so due. Let's pray together. Lord, make us into men and women of faith. Thank you for these great examples. And thank you, Lord, that these examples weren't perfect and they fell short. That gives us hope, Lord. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is convinced that you can't use them because of their failures or who they are or any of these things, I pray that you just encourage them that you can use them and you specialize in using people that are, are not esteemed highly by the world or, or don't have a lot of natural things that you can compensate for. Lord, you can compensate for all of that. So I just pray, Lord, that there would be constantly people stepping out and obeying what you're calling them to do in our fellowship Lord, and and in our personal lives, we pray, Lord, that you would do all these things in a beautiful way so that you can be glorified. Thank you for your word. It always points us back to you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.